Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now a part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have a returning guest. I think this is his fourth time with good reason. Dominic D'Agostino He's a research scientist. He's part of the Institute of Human and Machine Cognition. This is all happening down in Florida, University of South Florida, uh, Morsani College. We're going to talk about uh, cancer today because some of Dom's work deals with the metabolic side of cancer. And uh, as I mentioned in other podcasts, I'm putting together a book on cancer. And so I've assembled a big list of questions and we're going to throw some at Dom and see how he does. So Dom, thanks for coming back. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Richard. Before we start, just tell me in the field of cancer specifically, what's been your lab's approach and what's your, uh, just some of your general thoughts about it? Yeah, uh, well, I was trained traditionally as a neuroscientist and I you know, did my e doing cell biology and electrophysiology and looking at, you know, uh, membrane potential and neural networks and things like that. And then as I was throughout my postdoctoral fellowship and academic research career, we developed various tools. And to further, one was atomic force microscopy, which helped to expand the world of nanotechnology. So one of the fun projects that I did as a postdoc is installing an atomic force microscope or an AFM inside a hyperbaric chamber. And to test this equipment... I thought it would be fun to look at different cell types, you know, and how they respond to high pressure oxygen. And, you know, we had the ability to visualize, you know, the, these cells and it was kind of the first of its kind microscope. And, uh, and we had a scanning laser confocal microscope mated to the AFM, to the atomic force microscope. And we were looking at the mitochondria of different cells. And we had a, a, a cell line, I believe, of the, a U87 glioblastoma cell line. And I saw that the response to high pressure oxygen was much, much different than the other cell types. And I was like, oh, this is interesting. But I didn't really know a lot about cancer. I knew a lot about cell biology and normal cell physiology. I just knew cancer cells were proliferating at very high rates and they did consume more energy, but I didn't really know at the time that that energy was glucose. So, you know, I, I was observing some things, but I didn't know why I was observing that cancer cells were overproducing oxygen free radicals. And that if I manipulated certain things like glucose concentrations that, you know, uh, I saw some pretty interesting responses really dictate their rate of proliferation. In particular, I was measuring, I was uh, adding ketones because I was interested in stopping seizures and the ketogenic diet was your seizures. Okay. And I was mistakenly, I was actually using a, uh, I'm kind of embarrassed to say it now <laughs> because, well, still a lot of investigators use immortalized cell line. So cancer cells are different than normal cells because they are immortalized. They actually, they lengthen their telomeres. Like when they divide and they can keep doing that and just basically like live forever. Right. So that's why people with, you know, studying longevity will study that. So we had an immortal, we have different immortalized cell lines and the cancer cells are very easy to work with in culture, 
And this particular cell line was a brain tumor cell line from a 40-year-old, I think, glioblastoma or 44-year-old glioblastoma patient. And I became very, very interested in, you know, studying these cells and, uh, and I could not, I didn't really understand what I was seeing. So I was reaching out to different cancer biologists saying, why are these cells overproducing high levels of superoxide anion? And I was very interested in how cells produce oxygen free radicals because my theory was that this was initiating the seizures that were a limitation of our Navy SEAL divers using a closed circuit rebreather for oxygen toxicity. So it was more of a military, okay. it was a military project, but I was, I wanted to look at like smooth muscle cells and, you know, different types of brain cells. And these cancer cells were just like totally, I was just trying to figure them out. And one of the people I reached out to was Thomas Seyfried because he had done some work with uh, ketogenic diets and, and had some interesting cancer studies. So he was telling me about the Warburg effect. So the Warburg effect is essentially damaged respiration uh, or oxidative phosphorylation, which normal cells derive about 88% of the energy that a cell makes. It kind of oh, depends quick, on the cell type. Yeah, go ahead. Dom, quick question here. Are mitochondria truly damaged in cancer cells where they can't do oxidative phosphorylation or... Is it just downregulated and uh, fermentation upregulated? That question right there is a source of extreme debate between people who sort of embrace the metabolic theory of cancer. I would say that the mainstream cancer community, well, I would say five years ago, they would say that the mitochondria are perfectly normal, you know, from a bioenergetic standpoint, meaning that the mitochondria can make, have no problems making energy and they are not aberrant or not, not different in any way, shape, or form. So the main, and I'm not going to name names here, but the people at the top kind of believe that their mitochondrial damage, that the mitochondria are perfectly fine. And these are literal quotes from papers, from top tier, like people associated with NCI and the top tier cancer. But I, over the last couple of years, oxygen consumption, because people who study cancer mitochondria use a device called the, a seahorse. And it basically will, you know, will give you information about oxygen consumption. So it looks like from the outside, it looks like cancer cells are consuming oxygen, but you don't know where that oxygen, but it's not coupled to ATP production. And it's difficult to measure ATP production in, you know, you know, using these, these tools and you don't know where the ATP is coming from. It could be coming from, we think it's coming from substrate level phosphorylation, not only in the cytosol, but also in the mitochondria. So the Warburg, you know, to summarize the Warburg in one sentence, you would, you would call it what he observed and what his hypothesis was, his theory was that mitochondrial damage or damaged respiration and well, respiration, we think of respiration as breathing in and out, but respiration from a fundamental standpoint is mitochondrial oxidative phosphorylation. Damaged oxidative phosphorylation is replaced by compensatory fermentation in cancer cells, meaning that the majority of energy, the majority of ATP, which is the energy currency cancer cells, you know, make, all cells make, uh, is derived for, through fermentation, glycolysis, and also substrate level phosphorylation. So Warburg believed that it was the initial damage to the mitochondria. So this damage, there's this oncogenic paradox, right? So many different things can cause cancer, viruses, inflammation, hypoxia, radiation, 
you know, a wide variety of carcinogenic compounds, you know, age as we, and then also some genetic mutations too. It's interesting. The viruses that cause cancer are the ones that really target the mitochondria. And that's a whole nother sort of topic we can get into. But, uh, but from the most fundamental point of view, from the metabolic theory, from what Warburg proposed was that the mitochondria are damaged and and this becomes very, uh, this is the initiation of cascade of events that leads a normal healthy cell to become a cancer cell. So cancer cells need to maintain negative 56 kilojoules of energy. And, and it does that, you know, roughly 90% of the energy comes from the mitochondria and progressive damage to the mitochondria will transition a normal healthy cell to a cancer cell. And I can talk about, you know, go into a little bit more details about that, uh, about that sequence of events, but essentially that that's what happens. And in some tissues, it, it goes relatively rapidly and in other tissues, there's more of a gradual transition from a, a, a normal cell to a cancer cell. I would think in liquid tumors, the microenvironment of the cancer cells wouldn't be hypoxic or anoxic, but in solid tumors, now you're getting, you know, Exterior cancer cells, probably normal environment. Middle is hypoxic and center maybe anoxic. And if you looked across those for their metabolic condition and how they're doing, you know, how they're respirating, maybe then we would get more insight into what's going on on the mitochondria level. Yeah, I mean, you you give up, uh, have a pretty good point there. You know, solid tumors would be, you have carcinomas, sarcomas, and lymphomas. I guess lymphomas you'd put into uh, solid tumors. But leukemia, uh, and that's kind of near and dear to my heart because someone in our family had leukemia, uh, that, that would be a blood cancer. But the leukemia, you know, it, it's in the blood, but it starts in a tissue, right? It starts in the bone, in the bone marrow. So there are different things, and I don't... You know, there's a little bit of debate in regards to many of the things that we study are applied to solid tumors. And I know my colleague, uh, Thomas Seyfried, will kind of, uh, he had mentioned, and there's a couple papers on this, that in leukemia, leukemia cells also present a Warburg phenotype, which means they ferment. Before we continue... I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. So they may be responsive to these metabolic-based therapies that we are developing and testing. We have not in our lab actually studied any of these blood cancers. Uh, although I'm of the opinion that metabolic-based therapies may have some utility in the management of these blood cancers. But I mean, from a purely fundamental perspective, I, I think there are various, we know that certain forms of leukemia can be triggered by carcinogenic agents. So in these carcinogenic agents are known to damage the mitochondria and which creates an energetic crisis, which then would in some way 
sort of destabilize the nuclear genome of the cells, right? So the bioenergetic state of the cell really dictates DNA repair mechanisms. And if there's an energetic crisis, the fidelity of the nuclear genome will be compromised. And that can trigger, you know, oncogenic activation. Things like HIF1-alpha, tumor suppressor genes will be compromised. And then you have a gradual transition from a cell that uses oxidative phosphorylation to compensatory fermentation and substrate-level phosphorylation. You're, it's almost a de-differentiating back to a more archaic form of energy production. So the mitochondria are really like a separate organelle or a separate organism, almost, if you want to take it that far, that, that like to live inside the cell, right? And they have their own DNA. I think there's like, you know... 13 different genes involved in it, and uh, and they have their own DNA repair mechanisms, although the, the DNA repair mechanisms of mitochondria are less robust because there's a lot of them, right? And, and, you know, you have, you know, mitochondrial biogenesis and things like that going on. Uh, so maybe not as, you know, it can take a hit, but it can only take right. basically all the agents. So my point is that, you know, all the agents that cause cancer, you know, radiation, hypoxia, inflammation, viruses, you know, the aging process, various carcinogenic agents, they have a greater effect on the mitochondria than they do directly on the nucleus, uh, nuclear DNA. You know, e even radiation, you know, if we want to, I'm actually doing a big review now on space radiation. So it, it's called galactic cosmic radiation or solar particle events, these high, you know, charged ions that we get bombarded with when we go into space because we do a lot, you know, different projects with NASA and things like that. So okay. we kind of really delving into that and come to find out like, you know, radiation, if we're just going to focus, radiation is probably, is kind of an awesome thing to study if you're going to study cancer because it's such a powerful carcinogenic agent, uh, if you want to call it an agent or stimulus. And if you cause you know, it can directly cause double-stranded nicks in the DNA, which could cause a oncogenic transformation. But what radiation really does is damage it, damage the mitochondria in a way that will cause inflammation, and that inflammation can further damage the mitochondria, and it really produces an energetic crisis. And that through what you want to call the the retrograde response. So there's an intimate <laughs> communication between the mitochondria crosstalk, but the mitochondria is always talking to the nucleus and, mm -hmm. you know, and when it, it's telling the nucleus, we have an energetic crisis and we cannot make enough ATP via oxidative phosphorylation, there will be oncogenic act, you know, activation of oncogenic pathways or uh, oncogenes that basically allow the cell to survive things like HIF1-alpha and VEGF and things like that. And these oncogenes will increase glycolysis, will increase various growth factors that will start to initiate that transformation of a normal healthy cell to, to a cancer cell, which will express all the hallmarks of cancer ultimately, which is like, you know, evading growth signals. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Limitless replicative potential, anti-growth signals, sustained angiogenesis. You know, cancer cells can also evade apoptosis, right? And then, you know, and then there's metastasis, right? Invasiveness and metastasis. Only, I think it was like, you know, the hallmarks of cancer paper was written, I kind of forget in now, 2000. but around 2000, yeah. And then 2011, they finally added, 
you know, only only after, you know, some criticisms of, of this did they add the Warburg effect, which is, you know, uh, energetic, bioenergetic you know, damage or tra- transformation in changes in the energetic but, uh, mechanisms. But this is a different one. Uh, are there epigenetic changes in the mitochondria only? Has that been observed? And perhaps that's an early um, changeover in the cell versus nuclear epigenetic changes? You know, there is. And I, I have a student, you know, well, looking at a genetic disease and we're actually looking at ketones as an epigenetic modifier through something called beta-hydroxybutyrylation. So beta-hydroxybutyrate, which is a ketone, can directly interact with the uh, the histones. From a mitochondrial, so you're asking about mitochondrial epigenetic... Well, here's what I, I guess I asked. If, yeah. if there is mitochondrial-based epigenetic changes... Perhaps it downregulates oxfos and upregulates fermentation to a degree where, to an outside observer, it looks like the mitochondria is damaged and can no longer do oxfos. But in fact, maybe it's just the silencing of it and a upregulation of this alternative pathway. Yeah, I, there's a dynamic interplay there that I don't know that you know, and it may vary between different tissue types and cell types and things like that. But there's no doubt in my mind that there are a wide variety of epigenetic mechanisms occurring probably at the level of the mitochondria more than the, than, than the nucleus. You know, we, we do believe that the mitochondria kind of sh- call the shots. Like if, if you have robust and healthy mitochondria, then you generally have DNA repair mechanisms that are sort of maintaining, you know, the fidelity in, of the nuclear genome and repair processes are going on as planned. The, the, those repair processes are very, very energy dependent. So a decrease in the bioenergetic capacity of the cell will have a tremendous magnifying effect on the DNA repair mechanisms. So that's why, you know, this further sort of solidifies the the metabolic theory in my mind. But the thing is that there, we can be susceptible to this in a wide variety of ways. You know, we can have various SNPs and, you know, I've spent a, quite a bit of time studying redox control, uh, antioxidant mechanisms, and, you know, the immune system also comes into play. So it's probably more complicated than anybody can. My colleague, Tom Seyfried, think that, you know, cancer is a very simple. And if you view it from a metabolic standpoint, it does become a lot more simple. But I also think you have to factor in you know, the immune system, you have to factor in a lot of the epigenetic regulatory events that I frankly don't know enough about. But I do know that, you know, metabolic controlled epigenetic regulation is dictated by the health and vitality of the mitochondria. So I I can go that far and say that. And we are looking at, at various mechanisms, but when I start and put all my time and effort into studying a few mechanisms and, you know, a dozen more come out, you know, but we try to, we try to sort of focus on the low hanging fruit and the mechanisms that have the mo- more, most robust control that are sort of this interplay between metabolism and epigenetics is a big focus of what we're doing now. 
Um, quick question here. What, what organisms do you know of get cancer and which ones don't? And what does that tell you? And does this go down to single-cell organisms? Do they ever get cancer? Oh, wow. That's a good question. You know, like no one ever asked me these questions. These are like really good questions. You know, that that's I have not, I have to be honest. I haven't really given this a whole lot of thought. I'll just tell you what's coming to my mind. I know plants, for example, I'm looking out my window now and I see some trees that actually have tumors on them. So these, you know, trees, plants can get, can get tumors and I don't, I'd have to look into this, but I don't think you'd call them cancer. I know insects, you know, get malformations that sometimes people cause, you know, cancer. And even like mosquitoes, for example, had a friend studying mosquitoes and he's saying, oh, he's seeing cancer. He's seeing these malformations. But when I think of cancer, so you can have a tumor that's benign. You can have a tumor that is pre-malignant, or you can have a tumor that's malignant. When I think of cancer, I think of invasiveness and metastasis. And I actually should probably, you know, really, the, the definition of cancer is kind of fuzzy to me. And I don't know if it can be applied to your question, which would be a single cell organism. So I don't, to my knowledge, and maybe someone could prove me wrong, I don't think a single cell organism can get cancer. I know when you go up the, you know, the chain, obviously we studied mice and they get all sorts of cancers. Most of them will die of some form of a cancer. But when you work your way back to like insects and then smaller, you know, multi-cell organisms, you know, you start to see growth and things that would resemble cancer. But from a mammalian point of view, the definition of cancer is usually when we call it something that would kill the organism. So uh, like a malignant cancer, but you can have different cancers that are benign too, right? You can have like a benign tumor, but I think it's some people would not maybe label that a cancer because it doesn't have the capacity. Most people don't die of a tumor, right? They die of a uh, tumor burden once that tumor becomes metastatic and once it invades other tissues and impacts the function of those tissues and spreads. But maybe it's a long-winded question, but I don't know, to be honest, I don't think single-cell organisms can get cancer, but I know multi-cell organisms get growth and malformations that resemble cancer. So that's my, my best answer. And then, well, also other forms of life. Do bacteria ever get anything that, you know, looks like this or a biofilm or, you know, does cancer manifest in protists or, you know, non-eukaryotic cells? Well, yeah. So I, you know, again, I, I don't think you would label that sort of malignant cancer, which would, uh, although some growths things can, you know, kill plant, for example, and different organisms, but it, it differs in that, you know, the cancers associated with mammals are associated with invasiveness and metastasis. And, and I think, think you can have benign cancers like prostate cancer, for example, I'm trying to think of indolent cancers. So I think we would label them indolent cancers where people, and this be, this is actually a very hot topic right now, actually over-treating people. So you can do a scan and then detect cancer like prostate cancer and various indolent can cancers. But if you go in there with chemotherapy and radiation and stuff, then you're basically giving someone a very pro-carcinogenic therapy, the, the person is coming out of that therapy at a greater risk of even different forms of cancer now, especially if you impact the immune system. So this brings up the idea, you know, that are we, are humans living with cancer? So, you know, there's many people who die and upon autopsy, you find out that they have tumors in them and they were 
perfectly fine throughout. And who knows how long that they had those tumors. Yeah, is there is there any program to, as part of autopsy, it wouldn't be like an organ donation, but I guess it'd be like a histological, pathological donation to look at and sequence, you know, what appear to be non-lethal tumors and older people that have died. They're there, but they don't seem to have metastasized or caused disease and, you know, to sequence them and look at them. Yeah. I'm not sure what, how much information that you'd kind of garner from a deep analysis of these. So what we have observed is that the more the mitochondria are damaged and by mitochondria, I'm talking about you have structure, number, and function, right? So my colleague, Tom Seyfried, and and others now are kind of coming on board with this idea that in all cancer cells, maybe even leukemia too, I think leukemia may apply to So no cancer has normal mitochondria. I know not everyone would agree with this. I mean, 10 years ago, the large majority of the the cancer biologists would say that's absolutely not true. But I think now, I think they're coming on board. And, and now you probably have about a third of them will say that's true, maybe even half. So, and my, you know, I remember Tom telling me 10, more than 10 years ago, it's like, it's just a matter of time. Cause I was telling him, you know, I'm reading this paper, I'm reading that paper and these, these great researchers, and I admire the research are telling me that, you know, cancer have, has normal mitochondria. And, you know, he was just saying, it's just a matter of time. And I've kind of seen that shift over the years. So when it comes to indolent cancers or benign cancers, the difference is that those cancer cells, they don't really, they ferment, but their mitochondria are only damaged slightly. So they have less mitochondria. There's mitochondrial abnormalities and functional abnormalities would be a decrease in a lipid called cardiolipin. So, you know, studies have been done looking at the, you know, there's a microbiome and there's the, you know, there's the lipidome, right? The lipidome is sort of like a, a global analysis of the lipids in, in the mitochondria. And what you see is sort of an immature cardiolipin. The cardiolipin is kind of the glue that holds the inner mitochondrial membrane together. And if you have immature or less cardiolipin, then the mitochondria literally cannot do produce ATP. That's kind of like the business end of the mitochondria, the inner mitochondrial membrane. There's a, a decrease in the sort of the, the structure of that membrane. And as that progressively decreases, then the mitochondria fail to be able to make energy. And then there's a transition to toward glycolysis and substrate level phosphorylation. So there's data that's accumulating that the substrate level phosphorylation, which we thought was only in the cytosol, is actually occurring in the mitochondria now. So the mitochondria can actually start making ATP through substrate level phosphorylation. So anyway, the the point I think I want to kind of circle back that these indolent benign cancers do not have that massive, you know, mitochondrial damage, structure, function, number that you find in more aggressive cancers. So stated another way, a hallmark characteristic of cancers that are highly aggressive, highly aggressive and highly prolific and highly metastatic is that they have a higher degree of mitochondrial damage uh, defined as structure, number and function is aberrant. So uh, you'll see less mitochondria, you'll see, you'll see, you know, functionally they're, they're different. And, uh, and then they, they have their biochemical signature, signature 
will reflect a greater or less cardiolipin, mature cardiolipin. So they'll have a proportion of, of more immature cardiolipin, which is a component of the inner mitochondrial membrane. And, uh, and these are just hallmark characteristics of the mitochondria of tumor cells that are highly metastatic and aggressive. And these, the tumors will have a very pronounced uh, Warburg phenotype, which means that they are fermenting at very high rates, levels of glycolysis that are, you know, reported to be 100 or 200 times more. So that the cancer is very, very hungry for glucose and glutamine, which is a little bit harder to target. But so we're, we're very interested in sort of understanding these processes and understanding the metabolic phenotype of cancer. And we, we feel that, you know, there's immune oncologists, there's radiation oncologists, there's, you know, oncologists that, you know, deliver chemo. There needs to be a whole new class of oncologists called metabolic oncologists. So we are under- functional. Yeah. Yeah. And we're understanding that these metabolic therapies and it doesn't, you know, diet is one that could, should kind of be the cornerstone, but there's a whole toolbox of, you know, metabolic drugs that are being developed that are far less damaging to the patient's long-term health than these chemotherapy drugs, which wipe out your immune system, which makes you susceptible yeah. to other forms of cancer. And they may give you a couple extra months, but they don't increase your chances long-term surviving. That's what you're... Yeah, you may have been involved in this or know about it, but what happens to the respiration under uh, hyperbaric oxygen, high-pressure oxygen? You know, that would turn hypoxic anoxic zones into uh, more oxygen-rich. Does that yeah. Do anything to the mitochondria, and if so, maybe that means it's not a permanent damage to them, but again, just a uh, you know a change in regulation. Yeah. Well, uh, that's interesting. So that was sort of what got me into this whole field of cancer when I was a neuroscientist, you know, studying neurons, and we threw those brain cancer cells in. Although neurons generally don't transition into cancer cells, the glia do. So the glia just have a higher capacity. Uh, higher susceptibility, oncogenic transformation, and the microglia too. So, but that's another story. So, you know, when studying these brain cancer cells, what we observed is that under high levels of oxygen, they overproduce massive amounts of superoxide anion. Like it was literally just like maxing out my the fluorescent signal that I was measuring. So I had spent a lot of my postdoctoral fellowship developing ways, techniques to measure superoxide anion in hippocampal brain slice preparations. So uh, using different tools and techniques and dyes and things like that. So when I threw these cancer cells in there and exposed them to hyperbaric oxygen, it like saturated the signal. And I had to actually use less concentration of the dyes. So it's just like, I actually had to come up with a different technique because the cancer cells were just blowing out massive amounts of lactate, presumably, but also... Uh, blowing out massive amounts of oxygen-free radicals, these reactive oxygen species. So in, I was using a dye that measured superoxide anion. So we know that tumor, as a tumor grows, as the biomass of the tumor grows, it outstrips its ability to, uh, you know, the blood vessels don't keep up. <laughs> and as the cells divide and the tumor grows, the blood vessels can't supply enough energy, nutrients, and oxygen to the center of the tumor. So the, the center of the tumor becomes hypoxic. The hypoxia inside the mass of a growing tumor further damages the mitochondria and oxidative phosphorylation, and you get, you know, inflammation, and then the tumors producing these reactive oxygen species, and then the reactive oxygen species 
you know, further damages the nuclear DNA and the mitochondrial DNA. And so the idea that, well, you just asked me about is that with hyperbaric oxygen, when you deliver hyperbaric oxygen to a person, that hemoglobin is saturated, but you are, what you're doing is you're putting oxygen into the plasma, into the liquid part of the blood, right? And because the blood vessels are sort of erratic and compromised, the, the red blood cells kind of get caught into little pockets into the tumor and the blood, the red blood cells literally can't get inside the tumor. But if the, the plasma is saturated with oxygen and you can saturate, you can saturate the level of oxygen in the plasma by like 2000%. The PO2, if you just stick a PO2 electrode inside of a solid tumor and then give someone hyperbaric oxygen therapy, you know, the levels of oxygen will go up like 2000%, like crazy. What you're doing is not only are you reversing tumor hypoxia, which could help silence some of the oncogenes and also increase the uh, tumor suppressor gene activation, which is beneficial. And those, those studies have been done. Most importantly, what you're doing is actually you're causing an oxidative uh, burst inside the cancer itself. So the cancer cells will proportionally produce, overproduce oxygen free radicals relative to the healthy tissue surrounding it. So you can, you can sort of more or less get a site specific overproduction of oxygen free radicals. And this can be important, especially in the context of other therapies. For example, chemotherapies that work through an oxidative stress mechanism can further be augmented by hyperbaric oxygen. Also, the efficacy of radiation therapy is directly proportional to the PO2 of the tumor. So if you elevate the partial pressure of oxygen inside the tumor, that will further sensitize that tumor to radiation therapy. And, and this could be, can you imagine like, you know, giving someone hyperbaric oxygen and doing a targeted radiation procedure of that tumor? You could use far less radiation. Uh, you could probably use like 5% of the radiation. And I'm not even exaggerating here to where, and if it's targeted, like with a gamma knife or other, you know, seeds or things like that, then you're essentially doing no damage, very little, if any damage to the healthy tissue. But because hyperbaric oxygen site specifically causes a massive overproduction of oxygen free radicals, uh, which is even the overproduction is directly proportional to the basically to the Warburg effect, right? So <laughs> with the Warburg effect, you have you have a more hypoxic tumor. We're talking about a solid tumor scenario. So the more aggressive that solid tumor, the more it's going to be responsive to a hyperbaric oxygen therapy that's done in tandem. Alternatively, if you give someone hyperbaric oxygen and you take that person out of the chamber, the reactive oxygen species inside the tumor will stay elevated for an hour or two after. Like we know this. So you could potentially give someone hyperbaric oxygen therapy and then put them into radiation therapy or give them radiation therapy and then transition them, you know, just walk them over to the next door and to a hyperbaric oxygen chamber. And many hospitals have hyperbaric oxygen chambers for wound healing. So there's 14 different FDA approved applications for hyperbaric oxygen therapy and diabetic wounds or ischemic wounds is one, carbon monoxide poisoning. You know, there's uh, actually radiation necrosis. So if someone is actually getting radiation therapy, their insurance would cover the use of hyperbaric oxygen therapy if they're already getting radiation because it's, it's an FDA approved application. I wonder is a, a poor man's therapy you could use the Wim Hof breathing 
if you're going to get radiation, then perhaps that would have some of an effect. You know, yeah, you know, that's, it's interesting you bring that up because there's definitely something to that that needs to be studied, right? So uh, we could potentially increase the level of carbon dioxide. So carbon dioxide is a very powerful vasodilator and we can manipulate our physiology in a way that could hyperperfuse the tumor tissue in a way that, that could really enhance other forms of therapy. It, it involves a lot more time and effort and expert and maybe expertise too. Uh, a lot of, a lot more time and effort and nuance for the patient. And every patient may not be able to do it, but I do think that these breathing techniques have a lot to offer to cancer patients in further augmenting the therapeutic efficacy of different modalities. I know there's many mechanisms, but what are some of the mechanisms you know that cancer that cause cancer to start from inception and what are some mechanisms that you hypothesize would start cancer in somebody yeah so this is kind of like the oncogenic paradox right there's so many different things that can initiate cancer and we believe that many of these things that initiate cancer directly cause an insult to oxidative phosphorylation to the mitochondria so, uh, you know, people listening to this want to know what can they do to prevent these initiators of cancer? There are different viruses. So maybe we can kind of focus, you know, I'm not a, a virus expert, but I do know that, you know, things like there's DNA and RNA viruses, both have been implicated in the etiology of cancer. And that could be the HPV virus, the herpes virus, the Epstein-Barr virus, uh, hepatitis viruses, the HIV, uh, Kaposi sarcoma, for example, for HIV. So these viruses, and that was one of the things that, you know, I first asked Tom Seifert is like, well, I was like, well, what about viruses? You know, viruses cause cancer by directly impacting the DNA and causing oncogenic activation. But he assured me that the viruses were targeting the mitochondria. And, you know, if you actually start to do a deep research, especially the, some of the new research that's coming out, further suggests that these viruses are really compromising the mitochondria or causing inflammation, which then damages the mitochondria. So, you know, I actually had a, a shingles episode like a, a year or two ago, maybe it surfaced, but if I fast, you know, I, I noticed that fasting quickly silences the, the shingles. I was under stress uh, at certain points in time. So, and I think maybe that could be a, a virus too. So I think that viruses, if you have various viruses, I think there are various antiviral agents that can help. Aging, the process of aging itself, you know, you have a decrease in mitochondrial capacity and mitochondrial health as you age. So things like, of course, diet, fasting, exercise is the big one, breathing, meditation, all these things can help increase, you know, our respiration and enhance, you know, our, our mitochondria. But the mitochondria are really the ultimate tumor suppressor. And I want to emphasize that, that if you have healthy and robust mitochondria, and then some people worry about things like EMF and like, you know, radiation from devices and things like that. I get asked so many questions. So I'm, I'm actually bringing that up now. You know, what about the cell phone? What about EMF? I think these things are negligible. I think you could strap a whole bunch of cell phones to your head and, it, you know, I don't think it's going to increase your chances of, of brain cancer. But I do think that the interaction with the environment and the immune system, there are various carcinogenic agents 
that we probably need to pay attention to. You know, I live on a farm and we're kind of phasing out. We want, we want to avoid using any pesticides, herbicides, things that are can permeate and get to the food system. And genetic mutations really account for only five, maybe six percent of cancers that we know of. And many of and you know, many of these genetic mutations, which people will say affect the nuclear genome, many of the genetic mutations actually target the mitochondria. But I think if we're talking about cancer prevention, which I think is, you know, for the listeners out there, what you want to do is basically have robust you know, metabolic health through some, some amount of anaerobic exercise. I'm a big believer in strength training. Your skeletal muscle mass will like dictate your mitochondrial health, because if you build strong and healthy muscles, you, you make your body very hungry for glucose, you decrease inflammation, you, de- you increase your lifespan. You know, if you are metabolically fit in terms of strong uh, health, and what I like to do is use a cardiometabolic kit. So there's a company called ZRT Labs. And instead of having to go to Quest Labs or LabCorp, I get a kit. I go to Amazon.com. You know, I, I buy the ZRT cardiometabolic kit and it measures HSC reactive protein. It measures insulin. It measures hemoglobin A1C. It measures, you know, triglycerides and all this stuff. And I don't have to go get a prescription. I just, you know, go online and I buy this thing. And then I squeeze a couple drops of blood onto a card. I seal it up. I send it to the lab and they email me the results. You know, I do my hormones that way. I do, you know, I, I actually go and get maybe once or twice a year, I get a CBC complete metabolic panel or a CBC and a CNP. So complete blood count and a complete, you know, metabolic panel. But the important ones that people want to focus on are your blood glucose control. So I wear a continuous blood glucose monitor and I use Levels Health software system. And uh, it's a program and you can sign up through Levels Health where you wear a CGM device on, on my arm and it goes to, I'm using the Abbott per, uh, the Abbott Libre, but it's also uh, working with Dexcom and goes to, right to my cell phone. And uh, I can look at my glucose response to meals, to uh, what my glucose was doing when I was sleeping, and I can evaluate my nutrition. So if I eat something that spikes my glucose, you know, I know not to eat that or to eat less of it. And then over time, I can train myself on the best way to eat to manage my glycemic variability. So glycemic variability and a cardiometabolic kit are probably the most important things that you should focus on to optimize your metabolic health. And metabolic health will basically equal tumor tumor or cancer suppression or t- uh, cancer prevention. I know this this may be a little esoteric, but the biogenesis of mitochondria versus the biogenesis of ribosomes or other cellular structures, is it different? Do mitochondria, for instance, only come from other, other mitochondria? Do they seem to retain their, their sense of self, their separateness from the rest of the cellular structures? Or are they similar to, again, the biogenesis of other organelles? Yeah, they tend to, uh, it's a good question there. And a lot of people are studying this, not our lab in particular, but they tend to sort of bud off from one another and they can, you know, proliferate. The mitochondrial biogenesis will be dictated by the pressure that you put on the metabolic system. So meaning that 
you know, if you're eating a high carbohydrate diet and you're su sustaining on that, and then you transition to a high fat diet or you start fasting, then you move the energy system, the demands, you know, which would be, you move, you move away from glycolysis and you move towards a reliance of energy on oxidative phosphorylation. And for your body to keep up with that energy demand through the oxphos system, it's going to, it puts a stress on the mitochondria. So in the beginning, there's like actually an increase in reactive oxygen species and things like that that look negative. But these are part of the adaptive response. And you have a number of different pathways are activated in part from the nuclear to mitochondria retrograde response. So the mitochondria signal to the nucleus sort of an, an energetic crisis. So uh, in, in the context of fasting, it's a favorable adaptation where there's an increase in, in, in the function, in the structure, you have structural changes, and then the number of the mitochondria will adapt over time. And, you know, different Intermittent fasting, you know, fasting itself and a diet, a ketogenic like diet can actually increase mitochondrial biogenesis. And the ribosomes is, and that's another question I'm not, you know, I'm not knowledgeable enough to, to ask, but I know when there's an increase in, uh, in protein turnover and, you know, the, the demand for the body for growth and repair, there's sort of an upregulation and expansion of the ribosome organelle to keep up with the the demands of that okay it's a dynamic system so it can change decrease and increase depending on the on the demands on the organism well the reason why i ask is i wonder how i, I know that mitochondria resemble i guess a, a certain kind of what blue green bacteria blue green algae they're you know they seem to be kind of a microbiome within the cell. So that's why I wondered if the biogenesis is different and, you know, mitochondria only begat from other mitochondria and the other cellular structures are, you know, kind of created by the, the entirety of the cell itself If you know, how separate they are. And it makes me wonder if cancer, I wonder if you could say it's really a disease of the mitochondria and not of the cell itself, not of the whole cell. And it's the interaction of the mitochondria with the cell that really determines the nature and extent of cancer? Yeah, you know, that is a good question. And I think, you know, sometimes questions pop into my mind that I write a note to go investigate. And the link between your susceptibility of getting cancer and your sort of maternal genetics. So looking at like your your mom's background. So we inherit our mitochondria from, from our mothers, right? So uh, I believe that sort of our susceptibility to cancer may be linked there's a greater link from, from the maternal side because we get our mitochondria from the maternal side. So I haven't looked into that, but I, I, I think someone has to have looked into that. But uh, but I think that's an important thing to investigate or to okay. look into. You know, all the, the abilities and the hallmarks of cancer, I know that they're postulated in this paper in 2000. But what do you think the order of appearance of these mutations or abilities is in cancer? You know, when it, when it first starts... What do you think is the first ability and then the next and the next? And I know cancer and tumors are very heterogeneous, yeah. but, you know, is there any indication by looking back through lineages, you know, within a tumor, you know, from metastasis to primary? Can you see, like, what came first, what came next, what came next in terms of ability? To the cancer biology class as an invited speaker, kind of on, we kind of hit on this. So it, it does vary between you know, the, the type where the, where the cells are, for example, you know, whether it's a liver or kidney or brain or, or whatever. 
But if, you know, if you go back to the hallmarks of cancer, which I think you're kind of referring back to, you know, I, I have to say that it's the initial insult that will transform a normal cell to a cancer cell would be that energetic crisis and then the oncogenic activation, which really, I guess the first sort of thing that you'll see, if that's the sort of the question, like, what do you see is sort of a self-sufficiency, like the, the cell kind of de-differentiating. And this is sort of my interpretation of the literature. There's a transition to the default de-differentiated state where the cell sort of just becomes, wants to become autonomous, right? So it goes back to this like archaic form where it becomes self-sufficient in growth signals and it becomes insensitive to anti-growth signals. And this endows the cell with, you know, un- you know, tr- transition to proliferation, ultimately unbridled proliferation. But I think the first thing that, and I think if I'm understanding your question correctly, it's the first thing that you start to see with oncogenic transformation is a self-sufficiency in growth signals. So it be, starts to become, it becomes, de, it goes to a default state of de-differentiation, and then it becomes like its own organism, like it's separate, almost separate from the body. It walls off itself, it creates various proteins and glycoproteins, and then becomes uh you know, it becomes sort of resistant to the immune system, recognizing it. Usually natural killer cells will recognize it. And there's various, you know, cell surface markers. But as the the cell starts to proliferate, it starts pumping out lactate because it will present with a Warburg phenotype. And that also contributes to the cells, uh, the, t- the cancer's ability to evade the immune system. You know, as it starts growing, and starts fermenting and it starts pumping out lactate and that changes the micro environment of the, uh, of the tumor. And then the, the immune system can't recognize it. But I think that the first sort of signs are this, the cell actually becomes autonomous. It's like a kid that like <laughs> becomes sort of uh what do you say? Defiant in, in the family. It's like, it wants to avoid everything and just wants to completely wall itself off and be its own independent entity. And, uh, and that process is a consequence of uh, an oncogenic activation, an oncogenic program, if you will. Um, maybe you could say uh, metastases are like metastases are like runaway cancer cells. They ran away from home. Yeah, well, yeah, I, I think of metastasis and invasiveness are sort of further down the line. It's like, you know, I don't know. I'm trying to maybe I'll put this into like an analogy or whatever. It's like you have a kid and it's just like, you know, you have a very toxic environment in the family. And this is just a stretch here. But the kid like closes himself in the room and wants to become an independent entity and, you know, is totally ignorant of any kind of signals that the family is giving. And, you know, maybe he has a group of friends and he just starts, you know, replicating his ideology (laughs) with them. And then he goes off and and starts, you know, propagating his negativity and forming, you know, goes into a gang, right? And that's really what a gang is, if if someone want to put it in that kind of analogy. If cells 
go self-sufficient and they're autonomous, at what point if you have quote unquote enough of them, now do they act in concert? You know, does a, do all the cells of a tumor, even though they're heterogeneous, act in concert to further that new organism that is cancer? Does it act as a, uh, as mm-hmm. one? Does it have a sense of self and act that way at some critical mass? Yeah, well, that's a good question. So, you know, it'll, it kind of depends on the primary location of where the, the, the cell is. And then, you know, as that cell divides and proliferates and then becomes endowed with invasiveness and metastatic potential, then it gets in the bloodstream and then it ends up in like the liver and the kidneys and maybe in the brain. And, you know, it has those same qualities, but it is very genetically heterogeneous and start can start to transform in different ways and become more aggressive. There's evidence too that with metabolic therapies that an aggressive tumor can actually become less aggressive unless it can actually decrease in, in grade and in invasiveness over time. But it does, you know, there is, I think you're what you're getting to is does it like communicate with the original primary mass? It does definitely have some qualities. And I think, you know, there's probably vesicles and RNA that's being, you know, in the bloodstream that's starting to influence other tissues surrounding it. I know, I think you, you had questions about the microbiome. I know that tumors, tumors in a particular organism, in a particular organ, like if it's in the colon, if it's in the liver or different areas of the body can change the whole microbiome of that particular organ. And that microbiome can then have epigenetic effects. So it's like the tumor by virtue of changing the microbiome and the microbiome is responsible for making everything from, you know, serotonin to, you know, various a whole cascade of things and including, you know, different inflammatory factors too that can influence uh, growth and, and invasiveness. So by virtue of not only the expanding biomass of the tumor, but also influencing the micro environment of the micro environment and the microbiome of the particular organ can then produce epigenetic changes that can further alter the whole metastatic cascade and maybe further influence uh, and it could be a way that that primary tumor is talking to other tumor cells throughout the body. So, I mean, this is kind of getting far out there. This is like on the fringe of what people are studying now. But I know that uh, quite, quite a few papers have come out on how the tumor is changing the microbiome of different organs. Well, I guess to boil it down, what I mean is this. If I have, uh, you know, from what I understand, a one centimeter sphere of cells is about a billion cells. And that's like close to the smallest visible size of tumor. So if you have a billion cancer cells, yes, they're heterogeneous, but are they acting as one creature? Are they acting in concert? Are they signaling to each other? And they're all saying, all right, you know, in part of us, we need some angiogenesis going. There's, there's a, you know, a, an oxic region growing. I mean, do they yeah. act essentially like a biofilm or do they act like a tissue or an organ? Or are they just kind of a, a bunch of mercenaries that, are together, but they don't really work in concert. They secrete growth factors. They pump out lactate. They change the microenvironment. They are coupled through even like neurotransmitters. They are coupled through things called gap junctions. So gap junctions are sort of, they create like these hemi channels and there's connections that form a hemi channel 
and through these connections, connections, they can be electrically coupled and they can also be metabolically coupled. So if you have a tumor, you could go on one side of the tumor and cause like, you know, a biochemical change in that cell can happen and through various gap junctions could that that tumor is sort of networked with the other uh, cells in the tumor. So uh, I know that that's the way it works in physiological systems, you know, in, that have network properties. And I do think of tumors as having sort of these network properties. So they are all mm-hmm. communicating to one another to maximize growth and proliferation. But it, the process too is also a bit erratic. And I say it's erratic because a hallmark characteristic of you know, one of the hallmarks of cancer is actually sustained angiogenesis. That sustained angiogenesis in a solid tumor is very erratic. And which, which means like, if you look at the blood vessels of the tumor, it's not like they're going everywhere. It's, it's kind of like a disorganized, confused individual who's just like kind of schizophrenic and erratic. Like it's not, it's not a very elegant coordinated sequence of signals that would cause the the blood vessels to grow to maximize the growth of the tumor, you know, and that, that always kind of uh, I was always a little bit like confused about that, and that you do, and that's actually why hyperbaric oxygen is so effective at reversing tumor hypoxia because the you know the expanding biomass of the tumor makes the core of that tumor anoxic because the blood vessels are not coordinated to grow, so the right. The cells aren't talking to one another in a way that happens in normal cells and normal tissues in a way to make those blood vessels grow in, in a very you know elegant and defined fashion. Well, it's like cancer is yeah. like a bull in a china shop. It's still an organism, a bull, but it's going to wreck the china shop, meaning it's the surrounding body. It, it is. Sounds and, like that. That's my analogy. Yeah. And I do think, you know, the more I think about this now and some of these things I haven't really thought about in depth until you just asked them now. So I, I do think that you know, kind of cells are much more autonomous. So they have, they are, they're not just a unique metabolic entity. I'm not saying like each cell is like that, but each cell is autonomous in that it's not, you know, the growth factors and signals and things like that are much more erratic than what you find normal healthy uh, tissues because you have cascades of events that are turned on that are just not coordinated in a way. And you know, this gets into like this question is like, what is the evolutionary advantage of having cancer? I mean, these are like deep questions. I remember, I think it was Paul Davies that at university in Arizona that invited us to, uh, and Tom Seaford was there too. And we had this roundtable discussion, philosophical discussion, essentially, of like, what is cancer? You know, and it was like a meeting of the minds. And I was like, actually shocked that I was invited to it. But I think I was kind of a new guy studying this. And they wanted some fresh perspectives, but there was some definitely some high power people there that were t- just talking philosophically about some of these questions. Okay. Well, very good. Where can people find out more about your work and everything you're, you're doing in your research papers? Yeah. So uh, one-stop shop would be ketonutrition.org, ketonutrition.org. And we have a blog there and we post, you know, couple blogs a month and we also have a newsletter so if you go to ketonutrition.org sign up for the newsletter and you'll find all the information our latest publications we evaluate different studies that come out if a product is really interesting to us we put it in our newsletter you know when this podcast comes out i'll put it in the newsletter and and spread it out through that medium 
But yep, okay. ketonutrition.org. Very good. And Dom, thanks for coming. Like I said, I had you four times. I, I hope to have you a bunch more in the future. So thank you. Well, I appreciate being on. Thanks for having me, Richard. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.